Lynn was going to lead us in a short devotion for a few minutes now. Is that... <laughs> what, who? All right, let me just uh, <laughs> adjust this back to like... Apparently there was a kid height deal going on here. Hey, uh, if you're in uh, kindergarten through fifth grade, you can head to children's worship with Katie now. Dismiss you guys. For the rest of us, if you have a Bible, you can grab it and go with me to John chapter 15. If you don't have one, there's a hardback black one in the pew in front of you, and I'll give you some time to thumb your way to John 15, uh, because while you're turning there, I want to give you a couple uh, logistical things that, that we have upcoming. Uh, so the, the thing that we have done with great regularity in the last year plus now is we've really tried to make sure you were aware of what we're thinking and, and where we're going and sort of what our schedule looks like, especially as it pertains to gatherings on the weekends. Uh, that's been a pretty kind of up and down and not sure what we can do and what we can't do type of thing in the past year, wanting to be uh, wise and wanting to be respectful and wanting to have a good witness and wanting to obey governing authorities and wanting to gather together with the saints and kind of taking all of those competing interests and put them together. And so uh, while we've continued to do that, uh, we have really begun over the last six to eight months especially uh, to ask the question and pray through in leadership levels uh, what we were going to do with Saturday night. Like, what are we going to do with this gathering? And, like, I, I see many of you here tonight. Praise the Lord. And uh, not only that, I know some of you really, really love Saturday night and love the idea of that. And I, I see some of your face as I, like, even bring it up that it's like, what, what we're doing, what we're talking about. And so uh, I, I know that that's kind of a part with that. Uh, and so we, we kind of weigh that on one side of the equation. Uh, we also know that on the other side of that equation is that uh, like myself, Dave, and Katie, and maybe some of you who kind of bounce between Saturday and Sunday have this sort of unique privilege of getting to see and fellowship with the whole church community. Uh, however, one of the things that we've witnessed over this past year is even as we get to gather, there is a little bit of a different mood and a different flavor and a different dynamic in having two separate gatherings of the church uh, that is, is certainly different than what it was at the beginning of 2020 when we were all gathered together in one gathering on a Sunday morning. And so uh, we, we kind of see both of those things. We understand both of those things as vital to what it looks like to be a church in uh, good health and want to weigh those. And so we've, we've continued to look at it. And uh, we knew even before all of this happened with COVID that Saturday night was something that we were kind of like kicking around in the idea zone anyways. And so it said, okay, well, let's give it a try and see what the Lord does with it. Um, frankly, it's been, it's been a really glorious thing and we're really excited about it. Uh, and we feel like we want to continue to be thinking about, praying about, and assessing what that'll look like long term. Uh, however, we're going to also weigh that with, we feel like at least for some season of time, it'll make sense for us to go back down to one gathering on Sunday mornings uh, to watch the church kind of bring itself back together fully relationally uh, in the gathering of the saints. And so right now, tentatively, our plan looks like 
we continue in this schedule Saturday night at 6 and Sunday morning at 10 until Memorial Day weekend. And then uh, beginning on the Sunday before Memorial Day, which is the last Sunday in May, it's May 30th, I believe, uh, that specific Sunday will go down from Saturday night and Sunday morning to Sunday morning at 10 a.m. And right now the plan is that we would continue that through the summer. And and that as we begin in the month of June, in the month of July, to do just one Sunday gathering again, that we would really uh, be in prayer and assessment, and that you would be in prayer and assessment uh, as we continue to kind of watch how the Lord works in that, to try to figure out, okay, when the later part of the summer, the beginning of the fall hits, what do we do? Do we continue to do one? Do we come back to Saturday night? Because I think one of the things, out of everything we've seen over this past year, that we're really excited about and the Lord has bore a great deal of fruit in is this, that we get to be together on Saturday evenings. And, and that's been a really neat thing. Uh, it's, it's got an entirely different mood and feel. Uh, we're, we're kind of like in a different dynamic than what Sunday looks like. There's some good things and some bad things about that. Uh, however, uh, we're, we're going to kind of continue to just walk uh, desiring to be a people who are walking in godliness knowing that we have an answer right now, and that that answer might change, and that each day we're going to wake up and pray for wisdom and discernment from the Lord, and if that answer changes, we're going to be receptive to that and, and continue to move forward. So I uh, wanted to kind of keep you in line with this is where our plans are right now. Uh, the next eight weeks or so, we're going to continue in this way. Uh, if, if everything in, in the world around us continues in the direction that we see it as right now, uh, and if everything continues inside of the context of the church as we see it right now. We're going to move down to one gathering uh, for at least the first half, probably all of the summer, uh, and then we're going to kind of see what the Lord does in uh, deciding if we come back to two or we stay with one or if we kind of find some other solution outside of that. Uh, and so we appreciate you to continue to pray about that. You can certainly ask questions and you can certainly offer opinions uh, as long as you recognize that, like, we also don't necessarily need to listen to them, right? Like, well, no, 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 let me, let me say that a better way. We, I will listen to them, but you can, you can rest assured that in a 200-person church, no matter what opinion you have, there is someone else who has the exact opposite opinion. And so it'll, uh, if we, and on top of all of that, we're never really making decisions in a leadership level based on the majority of opinions, we're doing it based on what we feel like the Lord is leading us to do. And so your opinion valu is valuable, it matters, it helps us in kind of guiding what we think is wise and good and beneficial for us as a collective church body, uh, but ultimately then we have to decide like, okay, what, what does the Lord want us to do in this? So uh, we'd love to hear from you about it, we'd love to talk to you about it. Uh, you're, you're certainly not gonna hurt my feelings if you go, hey, I really want this or I really want that. Uh, so long as you have a good mentality in the Holy Spirit, knowing, well, ultimately, it's not about me and my consumerism any more than it's about me and my consumerism. It's about what is going to help us as the church of the Lord following the Lord, right? Amen? All right, cool. So, got that out of the way. Go with me to, first, or go with me to the book of John, chapter 15. I want to pray, and then we're going to read the first 11 verses of John 15. Father God, we are so grateful to be here tonight for an opportunity to come together to glorify your name by studying the truth of your word. Uh, I pray that this would be a time where your spirit is 
uh, supernaturally working and, and moving in powerful ways in our lives. And, and no matter what this week held, no matter where we're coming from, whether it was an exciting and encouraging week and, and we come in ready to continue in that, or if it was a difficult and hard and depressing week and we come a little beaten down, that either, either way we know that you have revealed to us your nature, your character, and, and what is valuable ultimately and supremely in our life in the truth of your word. And so I pray that as we go there tonight, you would guide us, you would encourage us, you'd give us exactly what we need to bring you honor and glory and praise as, as we exist to praise and glorify your name. In the name of Jesus, amen. John chapter 15. Jesus uh, is speaking here, and John records, and we, we've talked about this over the last couple of weeks now, uh, disproportionately records a great deal of the dialogue and sayings of Jesus that are from the last week, and especially from the last couple days of his life prior to his crucifixion. And so John uh, recalls really well that particular week. Now, that makes sense. It was the most influential and meaningful week in his life as a disciple and follower of Jesus, as well as the rest of the disciples. And, and really, we said last week, this is the most consequential week in all of human history when Jesus goes to the cross and then rises again, and that that becomes the turning point of all humanity. We even build our calendars off of that, that, that B.C. to A.D. flipped in Jesus. He dies on the cross and is resurrected again. Uh, we know Jesus' incarnation, his crucifixion, his resurrection are the most consequential things that happen in all mankind. And so in that, John really zooms in. In John chapter 12, Jesus heads into Jerusalem for the final time. And while the other gospel writers, and this is kind of recurring for us, have recorded a lot of the things that Jesus is doing during that final week, and a lot of his dialogue with the religious leaders and the Pharisees that lead to Jesus' eventual arrest and crucifixion, John spends more time looking at the way that Jesus interacts with his disciples. And so uh, he talks about during the Last Supper, Jesus getting down from the table and he girds himself and he grabs a basin of water and he actually washes the disciples' feet so that they know, as Mark notes, that the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And so Jesus uh, spends time with them and then right after that, uh, Jesus actually looks knowing that one of him, Judas, is going to betray him and sends him out to do his bidding and then uh, takes time with the rest of them to continue on. And then we pick up as he's comforted them all through John chapter 14 saying, listen, I'm, I'm leaving, but don't, don't worry. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to return for you, and I'm going to send to you a helper in the Holy Spirit who will come and be a comforter for you. And then he goes and moves into, in this time, and so, so we're in the last days of Jesus' life. We're in a time of kind of anxiety and fear and, and really some like mounting level of confusion with the disciples, and Jesus gives this in John chapter 15, which we, we know is the last of his I am statements. And he says this. I'm going to read all 11 verses to you, and then we'll go from there. I am 
the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. Verse 3, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Verse 4, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. All right, so Jesus uh, gives in the Gospel of John seven of these I am statements. They connect back to the very name and nature of God, Jesus claiming himself to be divine, and then through it using a figure of speech or an analogy to help us understand what our position in Jesus is. And so out of this 11 verses, Jesus finishes all these statements with this one. I am the vine and you are the branches and my father is the vine dresser and so i just want to make two observations or two points out of this and you think oh that'll be quick but you know me so it's not going to be quick because there's a whole bunch of subsets and different points that come off of those points but ultimately you just get to two things all right jesus means to first tell us what it looks like to be in him that that he's going to use this word abide that you would abide in me and he's going to tell us what the purpose of that is. Why are we abiding in him? So uh, let me answer this one for you first. What does it mean to be in Jesus? Or how are we in Jesus is maybe a better way to say this uh, and just kind of take out from where we were in Easter Sunday just a week ago. He says, I am, this is back in verse 1, the true vine. Verse 5, he reiterates this same thing. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Now, listen to what he says following this in verse 5, right? Apart from me, you can do nothing. In fact, uh, back in verse 2, he says the same thing. If you are not, every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. You, you abide in me, or you can do nothing. You abide in me. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You are taken away. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch, dries up. They gather them, and they cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Here's, here's the first point that Jesus is making consistently throughout all of the Gospel of John, and consistently in all of these figures of speeches, that Jesus is exclusively the way to know the Father. 
connection that you and I have to God comes through Christ alone. That, that it is by no merit of our own. It is by no other way. It is by no good deeds of ours. It is by no uh, uh, working that we can arrive at or find ourselves in a right relationship with God. This is, um, this is repeated throughout the scriptures, and I feel like I, I never want to miss an opportunity to talk to you about this because I think ultimately this is the best news that the gospel has to offer because it stands in such contrast to all of the garbage that the whole rest of the world bills out as what it means to be a complete, fulfilled, whole, healthy, valuable individual, which is ultimately going to find its worth in the fact that you could do good on your own. Every single religious system says that. Every single secularized system in our society says that ultimately the path to satisfaction in life is you being good enough. And the problem is your you. I love you Saturday night, people. Let's try it again. The problem is you're not very good. Amen? Amen. I, I did... Um, I met with a young couple today that I'm going to officiate a wedding for later on this year. And uh, so I do premarital counseling. And it's really, it's really interesting. So, so in premarital counseling, I always ask a couple questions uh, repeatedly as I meet two, three, four times with a couple before they get married. I ask them the same question to see how it changes over time. So I ask them both, what's the thing that you're most looking forward to about being married? And so they, they kind of give some like really fluffy answer because they don't want to give me the real answer, which is, uh, you know, not a very uh, answer you give a pastor, right? So instead they just talk about like being together and having some fun time and having a partnership or whatever it might be. Uh, and then I ask them, what is their biggest fear? What are you least looking forward to about being married? And so uh, that is really fascinating because you get some real good answers in it. Uh, and in particular, the one that seems to kind of recur and come up over and over and over again is that maybe as I learn more, maybe as we grow closer in marriage, one of us is going to change. And one of us is going to kind of like get kind of ugly. And I, I'm not talking like physically. You're going to get physically ugly too. But like, it, it, you know, spiritually, emotionally, like as a human, like what? Maybe I'm just going to kind of, right? And I, not I, because it's never going to be you. So it's, I'm going to discover that my partner has kind of got some really nasty things about them. Uh, and, and so what I was kind of working through this morning with this couple, trying to explain to them, is that is as glorious and comforting a thing as you can ever imagine, because I promise you that's true. I promise you, you have some really nasty truths about you that they don't know yet that they're going to discover one day. And here's the beauty of it. Marriage is ultimately about you making a vow to one another that you're there, even when you discover the ugly stuff, that you're there, that, that as you continue to move on, you get to be as open and real and vulnerable as you will ever get to be with anyone in the whole of this humanity because you will be known, the good things about you and the bad things about you, amen? And you got some bad things, 
Amen? You don't have to admit them. I, in fact, I, I was texting Whitney this afternoon as we were, we were kind of getting ready for this, thinking, like, hey, what is something gross? This was the question. What is something gross that I do that you know about uh, that I could use as an illustration, but not that gross because only you know about it, and I don't want all of them to know about some of the gross things. Like, I instantly thought of, like, six of them, and I was like, I ain't telling you any of those things. That's disgusting, right? And, and here's the thing. Uh, I got like 38 text messages. I mean, like that. Yeah, I was like, whoa, hang on, oh, slow down. We just needed one, all right, first of all. But, but here's the thing. What, what it reminded me of was, yeah, like we're in love with each other even though she knows all of those gross things that I won't even tell you about, right? And I know some things, never mind. And so like in that, right, here's, here's the beauty of this. Jesus doesn't say, I'm the vine, and so ultimately what you should do is work harder to be connected to me. Ultimately what you should do is be better or do more good deeds or find a way to achieve what it looks like. In fact, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. You're broken and you're ugly. The Bible calls it sin, that you have these things inside of you that are not the way that you should be before God, and yet Jesus' command isn't that you clean up all of those things, but rather that you come, you abide in Him. That ultimately it's about your relationship with Him, not how good you can do, which is a glorious truth. Amen? Saturday? Amen? Yeah, the truth of the gospel is rooted that, that you and I, we, we can't be perfect. And, and we can't be righteous on our own. And, and you can't do enough to satisfy the perfection of God. You can only do what Jesus says exclusively as the way to know the Father, as a way to be with the vine dresser, is to abide in Him. That you must see Him as the answer. So, then the question is, uh, well, how is someone then in Christ? How is someone abiding in Christ? And, and I think the answer, both here and consistently throughout the book of John, and consistently throughout the Bible, has two parts to it that are married and tied together in intimacy consistently all throughout the scriptures. And it's, it's this. First, that it is the calling or the will of the vine dresser, that's the Father, God the Father in this uh, analogy here, and that it is us believing or abiding in Jesus, that we're placing our faith in Jesus. So uh, watch, watch how John is going to describe Jesus saying this all throughout his gospel account. We've, we've looked at it for weeks now as he kind of puts these two pieces together as he explains what it means to be saved, what it means to be in him. In John chapter 5, Jesus said it this way, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he, whom the Son wishes. For not even the Father judges every, anyone, but has given judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So, first of all, the Son's giving life to who he wishes. There's the call and the will of the Father. And then in verse 24, the very next verse, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, 
he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death and into life. That you have the will of the Father is connecting you to the vine, and you believing in the Son and believing in the Father is connecting you to the vine. Later in John chapter 6, the very next chapter, he's going to say this. All, this is verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me. That all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but I raise up on the last day. So this will of the Father has given some to me. And then he goes on in this, in verse 40, and says this. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. That you are given by the Father and that you believe and have eternal life. In John 6, uh, 63, a little while later in the same chapter, he says this. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. He's actually talking specifically about Judas in here. And it says, and he was saying, for this reason I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. That it's the will of God. In John chapter 10, he says it this way. It is the, it, oh, John chapter 10, copying the wrong stuff. John chapter 10, he says it this way, speaking about him as the good shepherd. In verse 25, he says, I told you, and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name. These testify of me. But you do not believe because you're not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. That consistently throughout the scripture, Jesus' answer for what it looks like to be in him is this. That the Father, the vine dresser, has brought you, called you into his name, into his will. And that you are meant to believe that you have to trust in him and not yourself. That our faith is placed in Jesus. Now... In this particular analogy, second point, Jesus is going to note with this word what it looks like to be one who's walking in that faith. He uses the word abide, that you would abide in me. That's verse 4. Uh, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. The one who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. The, the Greek word there for abide, it's, uh, it's called minnow. It, it means to uh, make a home in. Uh, it, in or like, it's, it's distinct from, in Greek, the word like residency we might use in English, right? Like to reside somewhere. Uh, minnow means to make it home, right? Like, so is there a difference between a temporary residence and a home, Amen? You, you kind of with me? Like, um, we, we moved out to Darlington 
and we, we came out here, we were looking to buy a house, and, and like it didn't, like the, all the pieces didn't come together the way that we intended them to, and so when we first came out here, we decided that we would just rent a place for a few months, and uh, there's a lady in the church who is so gracious, and uh, was like, you just rent my house, and, and that was like this really awesome thing, uh, except that when you rent a house, it comes with a pretty good layer of stress, especially when you've moved 500 miles and the person you're renting it from is going to the church that you're working at. So you're like, man, I could screw up at my job and I could screw up at the house now. And both of those would count against me. Not only that, but uh, if you, you know this lady, uh, many, and many of you do, like she just, she just did such a great job caring for her house and keeping it clean. It was her house. She built it. And she built it before I was born. And she had, like, kept everything immaculate. And so even as we reside there, like, Josiah at the time is, like, a year old. You think we're, like, at home? I mean, we had tarps underneath his high chair to catch, like, the food that he's going to spit out. Like, and, and, like, after a couple weeks, we needed a bigger tarp, right? Because you realize he could really project all of that spaghetti sauce like everywhere in the world right and so so in that like this temporary residency has like a level of stress or a level of tension in it Jesus when he uses the word abide it means make a home in it's it's designed to be permanent and it's designed to be restful right like home is where you do all of that gross stuff that only your spouse knows about amen right like like you're not doing that stuff in somebody else's house while they're still sitting there, right? Like, I have like these calluses, never mind, I'm not even going to tell you. Like, you do stuff at home that you wouldn't do other places. Why? Because you're at home. Because you can rest. Because my yoke is easy and my burden is light that you would come to me and find rest. That you and I are meant to be a people who would find life spiritually when we abide in Christ. Now, second thing is what do you do with that? Why do we abide in Christ? What's the purpose of that? Well, look at verse 5 and 6. He says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, here it is, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch dried up and they gather them and cast them in the fire and they are burned but if you abide in me and my words in you ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you my father is glorified by this that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples here's here's the purpose we are meant to abide in christ that that's not only a momentary thing but that that's the ongoing call of the christian life that you would continue to find your rest your home in jesus so that in him you would produce fruit spiritual fruit now let me say a couple things about this uh, i, I want to point out he's going to list uh three I, I find four ways that he describes fruit in him in this very passage, and there's more than that, but this passage gives us four of them. Uh, but there's something that you have to remember first, that he warns with this, that apart from him, you can do nothing, you're cut off, 
and you're gathered to be burned. And what he's thinking about are those who have a tendency to see Christianity as a set of obligations and fruit as something that we can ultimately do or work for so that we would please God. That there were always going to be and always will be those who are connected even to the communities of faith that you and I live in that don't really know Jesus, don't really abide in Jesus, but rather see him as a religious system where you're just kind of trying to staple fruit onto the tree rather than ultimately abiding in him. Now, the best example of this just came a couple chapters earlier when he sent out a man who had been with him, walking with his community and spending time with him for the better part of three years who was going to leave and go and sell him for 30 pieces of silver that though Judas walked with Jesus, he wasn't abiding in him and didn't have fruit. Now, 2,000 years later, here's the warning in this or the temptation is that when we hear about bearing fruit spiritually, and so anytime there's an encouragement within the scriptures and within the church that you would do these things or be these things or walk in this way as a believer, that we would recognize that those are the results of abiding in Christ. Those are not the way that we find ourselves as good with God. Because if we ultimately make that about religious obligation and doing the right things, his recognition is you're not actually connected to the vine. You've just found yourself working at something that you can't ultimately do in your power because it's in me. And so if you find yourself, as we kind of list these four things, you find yourself going, I don't really have that one, I don't really have that one, I don't really have that one, I don't really have this one. The answer is not, okay, so let me work on this and let me work on that and let me work on this. The answer is, I better start abiding in Jesus. I better go back to the scriptures. I better spend more time in prayer. I better spend more time concentrating on my relationship with Jesus because fruit is not something that you make. It is something that is produced out of your relationship with Christ. You're abiding in the vine. Now, when that happens, look at how he describes this. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, here's the first thing. Ask Whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Now, this, this is not a prosperity gospel verse, though it has been hijacked throughout the years. This is not if you are in Christ, you will get anything you want. In fact, the very caveat in this is that if you're abiding in him and him abiding in you, anything you ask will be granted to you because... It means that the fruit that's being produced in you is that you are asking and desiring for things in your life that would ultimately glorify God, not self. That, that abiding in Christ means that your pursuits, your desires, your heart, the things that really matter to you are God-glorifying things, not self-gratifying things. Amen? And so abiding in Christ means our prayers and our desires will glory in God's glory, not in self in our life. Then he goes, he goes on and says this. Look at verse 8. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Now listen to this. Abide in my love. He's, he's going to go on to speak about his commandments. 
but in this, the commandment that he gives as a new commandment to his disciples just a couple chapters earlier was this, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's very similar to what he says here. By your love, you prove yourself my disciples. The second thing that we bear as fruit when we're abiding in Christ is that you love the Lord and you love others. That again goes back to a denial of ourself and our selfish claims of our life and it replaces them with a real desire, a genuine desire to love the Lord and to do so by loving one another because knowing that this real, genuine, selfless love proves us to be disciples, not only to one another, but to the whole world. By this, the world will know that you are my disciples for by your love for one another. That ultimately, one of the beautiful witnesses of the church is a church that's really functioning the way the church ought to function is in and of itself evangelistic because the world can't understand in all of the division and all of the chaos and all of the stuff that you see out there today, how could people possibly come together on a deep heart level and really love one another. That's, that's completely foreign to the world we live in. Now, people deal with one another so much as you agree with them, but by and large, outside of Christ, there is not a great deal of selfless love existing in the context of the world. Amen? And so by it, we show ourselves to be his disciples, that we would bear fruit in love. Now, now look at the next one. He goes on and says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So the, the third one, if, if you are abiding in Christ, you keep the commandments of God. That uh, out of love, and this isn't like a religious, uh, I keep them out of strict discipline and obedience in self, but rather flowing from a relationship with Christ, my desires and my pursuits are not only to pray for things that are glorifying to God, not only to love people in a way that is glorifying to God, but also to be obedient to what God has commanded of my life because it is glorifying to God, and that I trust Him with the direction of my life more than I trust myself. And so abiding in Christ means that you are someone who keeps the commands of God. And, and then the last one, and this one, this one's where we're, we're going to end, and then I'm, gonna, I'm just going to ask all four of them in the form of a question as we close in prayer. Verse 11, these things I've spoken to you, listen to this, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. Abiding in Christ should produce in us joy to the fullest. That joy ultimately comes from a vibrant relationship with the Lord. You lack joy in your life, you, you go back to Christ, right? You, you're free from real, deep joy. And, and, and this is, I think you see this, especially this past year, I think you've seen this. Like, our, our joy culturally is so circumstantial. Like, you have a good day at work, and, and there's a high level of what we would call in America joy. Amen? That's not real joy, right? Because, because you have a really bad day, 
And that joy seems to really be eradicated and all but disappears. When Jesus is talking about this, the fullness of joy, he's talking about a joy that is felt not in good circumstances. It's not felt in the chipper or the happiest of emotions. It's felt in the depth of knowing that you and I can rest in the fact that we make our residency, our home in Christ. That you abide in him. So, so here it is. Four questions. If the answer to all four of them is no, you don't uh, try to operate in some way of self-discipline, but you go back to abiding in Christ. What does it look like to abide in Christ? Well, number one, do you pray and desire things that glorify God or advantage self? What are my, what are my prayers what are my desires? Are they God-glorifying things or self-glorifying things? Number two, do you love others and love God? Or do you love self and the things of this world? Is, is your primary interest in loving the Lord and loving others? Or is your primary interest in loving yourself and this life temporally now, getting all of the things out of it that you can get? Number three, do you keep the commands of God? Are you, are you doing what the Lord has clearly and expressly commanded you to do? And number four, do you have joy? Not a joy that rests in good things happening around you, but a joy that comes from who is in you and who you are in, that you abide in Christ. Pray with me. Lord, You're the vine, and uh, I pray as your branches that we would continue to rest in, abide in, draw our life, vibrancy, filling in you and the endless supply of your love. And, and in that, that we would continue to be a people in faith, who trust in you to produce fruit in our life, that we would walk forward in that, and that where we are lacking, and Lord, we know we are lacking in so many ways, that it would continue to press us back to you, that it would continue to cause us to look to you, that it would continue to cause us to rely on you more and more, deeper and deeper, that we would be a people who abide in you. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you stand and sing one more song with us?